Hi, I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And it'll stay available for free till July 1st. And then I'm going to delete these podcasts as well. During this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread. And that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at manicmerch.com Chapter 13, Hearing and Giving Criticism. Hearing criticism is a skill that's learned slowly. All too often, criticism is met with defensive statements like, well, that's just your opinion, or you're hating, in order to dismiss someone's opinion. Instead of evaluating what's actually behind the criticism, it's blocked and never considered for how it can help a creator grow. By firing back reactionary retorts to criticism, the ability to grow from even the most negative of criticisms is shut down. Instead of blindly defending yourself against every criticism, it's important to weigh the criticism against your intent to consider what can be learned from the critique. With practice, you can consider this criticism gaining a healthy check on your intent to give you perspective so you can make the right decisions for your work. It's easy to get flustered when hearing criticism, so getting some distance to evaluate what was critiqued is often necessary. Evaluating criticism brings you self-awareness as well as gives you strength to handle the consideration that's needed to create. Taking every critique you receive as a chance to grow by gaining further objectivity not only builds your strength as a human, but it's one of the best devices for growth in your mind. The Toxicity of Blaming the Haters One of the worst reactions an artist can have is to dismiss all critics as haters, when there's a lot you can learn from your critics. Today, if you want to hear criticism from the world, it's easier than ever with critique websites, blogs, and social media comments. If you allow the comments to affect your creative decisions in some way, these critics are your collaborators. While that can be off-putting to some artists, it can be empowering if you put the right attitude towards this criticism. 
Hearing criticism is usually met with resistance, since it's a far easier path than measured analysis. All too often we assume anyone who doesn't like what we do is trying to bring us down, no longer supports us, or being maliciously hurtful. While all of these traits can occur in criticism, they're misdiagnosed far too regularly. It's become easier for fragile egos to protect themselves from all criticism by categorically calling all negative critiques haters whose only motivation is to bring down their targets. Whether criticism is educated or worthwhile isn't even considered since it has to be brushed off entirely. This approach to criticism is usually to protect ego out of fear of what would happen if you had to accept flaws that may be pointed out. While many criticisms are invalid or uneducated, it's important to evaluate them in order to grow your self-awareness. Often in life, we hit a frustrating place where we're looking for answers on how to grow to make our lives better so we can further ourselves. Most of the time, these answers lie in hearing a truth about ourselves we've yet to face. When you put your music out into the world, you open up an opportunity to hear about both your strengths and weaknesses. But this is only an opportunity if you allow yourself to give the comments on your music consideration. Since I work on so many records every year, there are constant tweets, album reviews, and social media comments about the work I've done. When I see a criticism of the production, I take it in while trying to consider what I can learn from it. Every project I do has an intent so I'm able to judge each criticism by whether that intent translates to outside ears. While we've exhaustively discussed making music for yourself first, others can advise you if your standards are translating properly. If someone calls a production raw when I was going for a more polished production, I might have to rethink if I've lost touch with production standards. Sometimes a criticism may be intended to deride a song, but it's actually a compliment. It's always hilarious when I produce a record and someone says it is too poppy when that was exactly the plan to make a record that was unashamed of how poppy it is. But hearing your record is sloppy or out of tune when you were going for a record that was meant to be precise and polished is helpful criticism that should lead you to reevaluate whether your standards are high enough. If you get bad reviews, you should consider the reviewer's agenda. Usually a criticism is a reflection of how a reviewer wants to look to others. Meaning if they say they like your music and you have a more mainstream sound, they could lose credibility in their world. If you're getting criticism from someone who doesn't even appreciate your style of music, the criticism may be purely out of posture they need to take, making it worthy of dismissal. Self-awareness is probably one of the most important qualities any of us can achieve, and hearing that we're trying too hard or our standards aren't on base can help us learn what we need to gain more perspective on. With my last book, Get More Fans, I was told that the book's name was off-putting, since it sounded like a self-help book, even though I thought it was a perfect title which I labored over for months. But once readers cracked into the book, they sensed its authenticity. Criticism can help us see the blind spots we all have. It said we all have a note on our back that everyone can see, but we cannot see it ourselves. Being judged by the internet can help us become aware of what this note says to then consider and apply to our work. It's hard to hear criticism at first, as it's another muscle you need to build. Some artists need a filter at first by having a friend read them reviews to find what's useful and not malicious. In time, they can grow to hear that not all criticism is valid, but calling everyone haters is the opposite of growth. Instead, take it in to begin building a muscle towards how to process it. Advice from the Suits Once you gain some success building a fan base, suits will inevitably come knocking. These suits cannot help but comment on your music, so knowing when to take their comments to heart and when they're overstepping their bounds can be treacherous since keeping relations with them is an important part of growing a fan base. Suits often get a bad rap. No one ever pats them on the back when they tell an artist they can do better and that criticism leads to a successful record. Throughout my time engaging with Suits and even being one, the best practice I've seen is giving an objective opinion about how the artist can be the best they can be. Instead of forcing their creative direction on the musician, they give them feedback on how they can be the best version of who the creator wants to be. Since musicians won't make good music if it's not what's emotionally resonant to them, 
them suits worse behaviors telling a musician to go in a direction they're not passionate towards. Telling an emo band they need to sound more like Massive Attack when they don't like their music wastes time for both the suit and the artist when they make terrible music. It's good to offer advice like, take a listen to Massive Attack to see if it influences what you do, but it's detrimental to their music to force an artistic agenda on a musician. A common trope of suits giving advice is to follow the latest trend, but if a musician doesn't like that trend, it always comes off as derivative, often leading to the death of that trend instead of helping the band. Nothing kills a trend faster than when 1,000 inauthentic imitators rush in with generic drivel. While we've all heard the trials of art being shut down by suits that don't hear a hit, there are cases where this has yielded great results, as well as the often referenced utter failures. This advice has motivated many lazy musicians to exceed their artistic limits to craft a better song. But this advice has also come from a conformist, know-nothing suit that's chasing trends instead of making trends that wouldn't know innovation if a sentient robot smacked them in the face. There's no better evidence of this than the debacle Wilco went through in their movie, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart when the same company which rejected the record later released it under a different imprint. When you read stories of the great artist developers, they impart influences along with standards upon artists. They tell stories of successful examples, but they don't exert their tastes on the artist. Telling a musician they could push their boundaries more or they haven't found the right collection of songs is an opinion that allows an artist to analyze against their intent. If a musician is confident in their creative direction and knows what they want to express isn't aligned with a suit, it'll rarely end well in compromise. But often, when a musician is less confident, they know that they can do better. So they'll take the comment to heart. Just as the head and the heart are very different struggles, the suit and the artist are two different beasts that must coexist. Just like the head, a suit often overthinks concepts that root an artist's vision. But the artist can have too much heart, resulting in a loss of objectivity as they overly emote into a panic. Sadly, discussions of this struggle tend to be too black and white, where they either dismiss all of the advice from the suit, or they trust the suit without sufficient consideration. There's utility in suit's feedback if it avoids imposing inauthentic influence on artists. Who do you trust? Throughout your creative existence, you'll be constantly inundated with unsolicited advice on how you can improve your music. It can be troubling to sort through, leaving artists enraged at some of the ridiculous unsolicited comments made on the internet. Figuring out whether this criticism is someone pursuing an agenda makes it even tougher to figure out. There are a few rules I've learned to figure out how I consider criticism. How does this person benefit? Figuring out if someone's agenda is to pursue their own benefit can clue you into why they're giving this feedback. Consider if this feedback is only there to fuel selfish gain for the critic, which could be taken with a grain of salt. Is this person proficient in this subject? Producers and well-trained musicians are able to dissect small parts of sounds to tell you exactly why an element isn't working. They can also zoom too hard, getting far too into their own taste to give you helpful advice for your intent. With that said, if you're looking for feedback from a respected expert you admire, it can be helpful to process their criticism to weigh against your intent. Uneducated ears. Non-musician input is commonly written off when critiquing music, but I find the way non-musicians listen to music can be much more about emotion than those who are constantly dissecting it from the bias of musical proficiency. Hearing emotional feedback or when an element sounds off from those who are uneducated can be a great alert to a problem. With that said, these uneducated ears can try too hard to find errors, resulting in the silliest feedback you've ever heard. Just because someone has no musical education doesn't mean they cannot feel emotion or tell you if your song feels as powerful as another song. Confirmation bias. When I get lots of feedback on a subject, I try to make sure I'm not suffering from confirmation bias. All too often when we hear criticism, we try to use it to find whatever is easiest or most convenient for our present state. I try to ask myself what's the hardest truth I'd have to face when I receive criticism about a song. 
This truth may be that I need to rewrite a whole section of a song or start a mix from scratch. Usually, the hardest truth is the one you have to face, since our minds try to convince us the easiest truth to execute will work. The public has no imagination and will rob you of what makes you special. The majority of listeners have a limited vision of musical potential and only know how to imitate others. Anyone who has graduated kindergarten gets that there are psychological profiles of those who are leaders and followers. You'll hear tons of advice on how to make you more commercial or accessible. Most of this advice comes from those who don't get that simply imitating what has already been done will get you nowhere. The world wants artists who have a unique character to their work, not another copy of a copy, but the advice you get is usually coded message on how you can be a clone of a successful artist. Finance blogger Ramit Sethi puts it like this. The world wants you to be vanilla. They want you to be the same as everyone else, but the minute you are, they abandon you. This sentiment has been echoed by countless artists, including Grimes. Most people are only able to tell you to imitate something else they enjoy or has received success. While this is great advice for athletes and those looking to figure out practices to get more successful, when it comes to your creative choices, this advice is largely useless. Even worse, some advisors have intricate knowledge of one discipline but almost none of another. When it comes to how a painter can improve their work, I have nearly no vision on what to do with a finished painting, but with a half-done demo, I'll have hundreds of ideas. All of my advice comes from my experience in music and business, but is neglectful of the nuance of how you communicate art as a visual format. If your critics are telling you to get rid of an aspect of your intent since it'll help you get famous, you cannot give up on it. The character and quirks you like about yourself are what others will criticize before you're successful and what they'll celebrate when you're successful. Giving criticism. Just as important as hearing criticism is the ability to communicate your ideas effectively. There are a few practices that can make a world of difference in getting what you want as well as getting the most out of your collaborators. Opening up creative possibilities with humility. If everyone is willing to hear comments on their work, you're on your way to bigger and better things. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. On my podcast where I interview producers, there's a common trait that angers them. When a musician says, hey, can you turn that compressor off the snare? When a compressor isn't even on the snare? It elicits an angry reaction from the producer as the musician is overstepping their boundaries. Most people can smell from a mile away when someone is swimming out of their lane of expertise and into theirs. It's basic human nature to be a bit annoyed. While it's a bit silly these producers are angered by this, especially since the musician is trying to be happy with an album they may promote for the rest of their life, the producer is angered that you're not talking to them in a way that's helpful to achieve your goal. In order to get your goal across, restating the question as, can we work on the snare a bit? I feel it's a bit compressed, maybe. I want it to be a bit more gentle. There are a few details to this technique to pay attention to first. It's polite without offering a direct action that must be done. Secondly, it offers some solutions but doesn't give an imperative. It's also helpful to describe the emotional response you'd like it to be closer to. It can occasionally be hard to get on the same page using words like gentle, but if there's an example of a record with the sound you'd like the snare to be closer to, you can usually get an engineer to get it closer to what you want. The same criticism skills go for your band members. Being super specific about what you want them to do can suck the creativity right out of them. While you you may know you want your bassist to play an octave higher for the last bar of the chorus. It could be helpful to ask them for some other ideas on what they could do for that bar. Allowing them to come up with solutions makes them not only feel valued, but also helps them maintain their interest in the project. It can also lead them to come up with an idea that's better than what you thought of, or could be combined with yours for an even better result. Even some of the least proficient musicians I've worked with will surprise me when I exercise this technique. If the musician is great at their instrument, they probably have a more advanced way of getting what you want if you communicate with them in a way that opens up possibilities instead of shutting them down with overbearing suggestiveness. If they don't come up with a better idea, you can always suggest that they go up the octave since you know that works.
Getting the most from outside collaborators. When working with outside collaborators or studio musicians, there are a few ways you can maximize their contributions with a similar technique. I make them two mixes before the session. One contains the part the songwriter and I have composed for them to play on a MIDI instrument, along with another that doesn't include our example. I'll tell them to listen to the song without the part we wrote to come up with their own ideas. I'll get a few takes of their idea to see if they come up with anything better than what we already have. After that, I get them to play the part we wrote, sometimes with some of the ideas they came up with added in. After they record the part we wrote, I then ask, is there anything you can think of to improve this part? That single question is usually when the magic of the collaboration happens. The session player is often creatively stifled by following orders from those who don't understand their instrument, feeling both frustration and resentment. But given the chance to improve upon an already finished idea, emboldens their expertise to find small inflections we overlooked that a proficient player understands. Allowing collaborators to develop their own ideas while letting them feel like the expert opens up creative potential. Even if you you know exactly what you want, allow your ideas to be approved upon since there's little cost of time compared to the reward. Constructive criticism is often about keeping a conversation going. Rule of art, can't kills creativity, Camille Paglia. In acting improvisation classes, there's a technique called yes but that allows the conversation to keep going for your collaborators to work off of. When suggesting or criticizing a part of a song, this is helpful when you introduce no but. Adding an alternative or a more descriptive part to your criticism allows a conversation to start, whereas only saying you don't like something leaves the conversation in an uncomfortable place. It's inspiring for collaborators to hear what you like or dislike since it offers a place to build from. Criticism is labeled constructive since you can build from it. Trying to make sure all of your criticism or affirmations have a description that inspires the next step helps keep the momentum going. Negativity is the enemy of creativity, David Lynch. Leaving an open-ended solution to the problem that includes the person being criticized involved will always get a better reaction. After stating what you find wrong, offering a solution but not strictly stating that it's the only way to do it leaves the door open. Simple statements like, what if we try, or since you're good at this stuff, what do you think we could do to fix this, could get an amazing reaction from collaborators. If you do have to criticize someone, find anything nice to say first, and your criticism will be met with much more open ears. I try to find anything. No matter how hard I have to try, I can compliment before giving a seriously harsh criticism when working with musicians. This tactic often leads to them accepting the criticism and openly evaluating it. When to be detailed about what you want. We just talked a lot about leaving things open for collaborators, yet there are times being overly descriptive can be extremely helpful. Just as you should leave your collaborators some wiggle room to be creative, there are times to give a lot of direction. In short studio sessions, it can be hard for a collaborator to know what you want when you're not familiar with one another, unless you're able to express what you're looking for in great detail. As a mixer, I'm doing a process the musicians I work with have little knowledge about. When I receive mixed notes from the musicians I work with, I tell them to explain their thoughts in as many words as possible. Usually these musicians don't have the lexicon to easily describe what they want, so encouraging them to go overboard can give me clues to what they're looking for. Detailed input on what you like, whether it's tone, inflection, composition, etc., can be extremely helpful in getting your vision across, especially if there is a communication barrier. Wait for the idea to be realized. One of the most common disputes in collaborations is when someone critiques an idea before it's ready to be judged. Many ideas aren't able to be judged unless they've been developed for a few minutes or the proper context is presented. The fastest way to a fight during a song's drafting is to judge a person's idea before it's even realized. Not only does this cripple the chance of the idea improving the song, but it also stifles the person whose idea it was. Just as we discussed with brainstorming sessions in musical environments going wrong, we must remember one of the only ways collaborative environments work properly is by not criticizing others until the idea is fully developed. While this can seem like a waste of time, the momentum drained when collaborators feel hushed 
along with the bad environment it creates, isn't worth the time spared. Chapter 14, Gaining Creative Momentum. The hardest part of any project for most artists is to get started. At first, we see a mountain lined with fear and the potential for failure. We wonder if we're taking on the right task, along with a million other thoughts that can cause us to avoid doing what we want to do. The good news is, resistance is usually all in our head, so we need to practice getting past it. The bad news is some of it's real, so you'll need to search within yourself to find how to overcome it to make the right decisions for your life. Differentiating self-doubt, self-consciousness, idea doubt, and shame. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt, Sylvia Plath. Distinction that's often lost in creativity is the difference between self-doubt, also known as self-consciousness, and shame. Shame is the feeling that you, yourself, or what you're creating aren't good enough and have decided you're untalented or dumb. You don't want to show yourself to the world since you feel unworthy of the attention. You're the problem, so by extension, all your ideas are unworthy of being shown to others. The problem with shame is it leaves nowhere to grow whereas self-consciousness and doubt are temporary emotional setbacks. Self-consciousness is the enemy of creativity. Jarvis Cocker While some of the best nights of my life have been spent listening to his music, Mr. Cocker has this one wrong. Self-doubt is simply that you question whether your ideas are good enough. While I'll concede to Mr. Cocker that if you feel self-conscious about your ideas or being judged, you may hold back your authentic expression or performances. But being self-conscious does have benefits. Any scientific study of great creators shows that the neurotic insecurity of self-doubt that leads to constant wondering if what you're creating is good enough is what often fuels great creators' urge to reach great heights. They push past where many others would stop and work until they've made a work they feel is beyond reproach. In addition to this, idea doubt is something totally different. It's important to recognize that ideas need to be developed. Often your doubts are a hint that your mind is finding a dissonance that needs to be more considered. This thought process finds the right approach to your idea or nixes it to find an idea that's more worthy of development. Trust your doubts and continue to develop an idea. But don't see doubt as a sign you should give up until you feel it's been incubated fully. As a popular saying goes, if you don't try, the answer is always no. But if you do try, it might be yes. Why you need to start now. Anyone older than 23 has heard someone say, I learned more in my first month on the job than I did in four years of college. While this is a poor comment on academia and creative fields, there's a reason so many people say this. Going through the creative process teaches you more than you'll ever learn in school. Creating helps you learn what you want to do as well as gives you the practice you need to hit the bullseye on what you're aiming for. You need feedback as well as experience, which nothing can replace. You must go through the process to learn how to express what's inside of you. One of the toughest realizations is what you create when starting out won't be very good. So there'll be some work to do before it's great. Many musicians get frustrated when they first start creating since what they make is unlistenable. This is why it helps to start as a teenager since you haven't developed standards while having countless hours of unoccupied time to become proficient. But if you decide to start out later in life, remember your capacity to get good fast is way greater. Regardless when you do start, if you feel frustrated, Ira Glass of This American Life has great advice for you. He says, for the first couple of years you make stuff, it's just not that good. It's trying to be good, it has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you in the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have the special thing we want it to have. We all go through this, so if you're just starting out or still in this phase, it's normal and the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It's only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. Many musicians start out with music that's easy to compose so they don't overwhelm themselves. Pop punk, folk, minimalist techno, and reggae 
all allow musicians without much technical proficiency to get started acquiring the skills to do better creations, even if they stay within these genres. As long as you could come up with good hooks that have heart, you could make acceptable music in these genres while you refine your skills. Fear of Failure and Rejection Resistance most commonly comes in the form of fearing rejection. This feeling for most artists can only be conquered with a realization that it's part of the journey. Just as we need to make mistakes in the creative process, you need to fail to grow as an artist. Every artist that goes on to greatness has failed before, but they learn how to turn those failures into a callus that makes them stronger. A great way of looking at this in practice is the attitude author Stephen King took towards failure. He hung up every rejection letter he got on a nail until it began to sag. He then got a second nail for all of them. His failure became a badge for his perseverance. Far too many artists quit when faced with any adversity before they can grow into being a great creator. Instead of seeing this rejection as a failure, you need to see this as badges of what you've overcome to get where you want to go. Joan Jett famously got rejected by 23 different major labels before releasing her first record independently while on her way to becoming a legendary artist. Every band I ever managed asked half a dozen times before I finally said yes. No isn't always no forever. Failure and rejection are all part of the path to doing great work, not a reflection of who you'll always be. When I do any project, I hit what many call the point of despair. Fear overtakes you, allowing your doubts to get the best of you. The morning my last book was released, I had my first panic attack in a decade. An hour later, the most important review I was waiting on called it the best book for DIY musicians to read on the music business. I was humbled to realize that no matter how many times I've given the don't be scared pep talk to the musicians I've produced, I wasn't immune. Our minds vet our ideas by applying questioning to them, but occasionally go a bit too far by scaring us. Push through and put yourself out there, or you'll never know the many rewards of what happens when you put your ideas into the world. You may have noticed that actors always say they took a certain role because they were afraid of it. The answer sounds so cliche, yet when you get to know the truth behind the saying, it's quite intriguing. They take the roles that make them feel least comfortable since they know it helps them to grow. The best creators know that fear is often a good sign since it means they may have to explore what they're scared of by leaving their comfort zone. When that risk is rewarded, it's one of the best feelings. A common trait of great artists is the way they get to great work is pushing past fear. Musicians who push boundaries have to trust the part of a song that emotionally resonates with them, but also makes them a little uncomfortable. Creatively, when there's some fear on what you're trying to do, that's usually a good sign you're about to make something more emotionally resonant than before. With that said, fear can also be a caution worth heeding. Compensating for your inner monologue. When you talk to artists, they're all climbing a different mountain of emotional growth. Our inner monologue is usually a personality that's nothing like what we outwardly display, either overly complimenting us or being a negative roommate that puts us down. The roommate analogy is a great way to look at how you deal with this struggle. Figuring out how to balance this roommate's negativity or unrealistic view of your greatness is essential to being happy in your creative life. If we're lucky, it's an honest critic of our work, but that often takes work through compensation and understanding after creating enough work to judge whether it nurtures or detracts from our process. As we reach this awareness, we need to compensate for the deficiencies our inner monologue creates. If you tend to find that 99% of your friends tell you that you're too hard on yourself, it's time to take your inner critic less seriously and see what that gets you. Whereas if you're continually disappointed with your work, it may be time to listen to that voice when it tells you that you can do better. Just like a roommate, you may have to do excessive work that feels like an unfair burden on you, but when you find peace with this roommate, your head feels like a home instead of a hostile environment. You cannot wait for the right equipment. In my experience, poor people are the world's greatest entrepreneurs. Every day, they must innovate to survive. Muhammad Yunus. There's a particular ailment of resistance that seems to inflict an ever-expanding amount of musicians. That being the, if I only had form of resistance. Musicians commonly procrastinate on creating until they've fulfilled a fantasy equipment scenario that they believe will allow them to achieve greatness. 
Most of the time, this stems from a piece of equipment they assume a musician used to make a record they admire. Today, having a laptop with a recording program's stock plugins and your instrument in hand will be a far more evolved palette than what many classic records were made on. The excuse that you'd be a great artist making amazing art if you had better equipment misses that you get to be an amazing artist by mastering terrible equipment. You need to start creating now to become proficient and learn from your mistakes, since you'll be making lots of them. The best musicians usually start on the worst equipment possible which later allows them to be proficient when they have amazing equipment since they become so skilled at making bad equipment sound good. When you start off with poor equipment and later move to good equipment, it's intuitive to make great sounds with it. Eddie Van Halen famously started with the cheapest guitar around that would give him splinters all day. When he graduated to a great guitar, he was prepared to explore great musical heights, since it felt like a toy compared to what he started with. Take the challenge of creating in less than ideal circumstances and reap the benefits later. If you read about the early days of most of your favorite musicians, they did the same. Pick a format and get to work. Alan Douches. Even worse than those who wish they had better equipment to create are those who already have sufficient equipment to create with, but spend forever deciding whether a different DAW, mic preamp, guitar, or some other equally trivial variable will finally be the key to making great music. Considering the equipment you use is very important, but far too many musicians deliberate this instead of spending time getting to know their equipment. It's not the $3,500 Les Paul that makes a guitarist sound great. It's what they're doing with it. The same goes for any other piece of equipment, including DAWs and compressors. Creators who are proficient with their equipment are always those who make the best music, not those who spend more time swapping out pieces of gear than actually creating with it. If you have the opportunity to create, taking the time to develop your skills is far more important than having an ideal set of tools. For years, I suffered from always wanting for things to be perfect before I'd get to work. I knew if I'd have a new mic preamp in two weeks, I'd use it as an excuse to put off doing guitars on a song. Now I'm a different person. As I type this, my Mac laptop screen is smashed after a cab drove off when I wasn't fully out the door. I could say it'll be too annoying to write on, so I should spend the day buying a new one and setting it up. But after years of going through this, I know I need to work with what I have in front of me. There will always be an analog synth that'll sound better. There will always be a day that it's better to edit your 20-minute guitar solo. Nothing will ever be perfect, so if the means are there, it's time to get to work. An extension of this also goes for those who read books, blogs, and attend workshops when they could be creating. Furthering your understanding of how to express what's in you is one of the most valuable uses of your time when you aren't able to create. But if studying is the majority of what you spend your time on, put this book down and don't read this or another one again until you've expressed what you've been thinking about. The consideration of your creative process and tools should be a fraction of the time you spend getting inspired and perspiring or else you'll never express what's in you. Writer's Block Musicians regularly talk about writer's block or creative blocks. The confusion in this state is very real, but in my experience, there's never been a musician I couldn't coach out of it as long as they followed through on what we figured out. Let's first talk about the root of these blocks, being that the artist isn't happy with what they're perspiring as they try to create. The creation isn't living up to their standards of what's worthy of further development. Since you need to trust your gut, this instinct should be taken very seriously. Emotional Evolution it can be confusing since a creative block can come from being a different person emotionally than the last time you wrote songs. I, along with many other record producer friends, tell every musician that they should never stop writing since this is the most common cause of writer's block. When you go too long between batches of writing songs, skipping ahead can leave you confused about the emotions you're having at present. You felt one way in the past and now feel an entirely different way, so songs don't have the resonance they used to. Needing to express an emotion that's different than those you've expressed before can lead your gut to being unsure if the emotion is as resonant as possible. 
But if you didn't follow the advice to never stop writing and are now in a block, that advice is of little help at this moment. What you now need to do is acknowledge you're a different person emotionally and figure out that if you're less fragile than you were during your last album, you may not want to rip your heart out when the right riff comes. You need to figure out what's currently inspiring you and perspire what you currently feel. Accepting this may be a totally different emotion than what you used to express. For example, if you were listening to stoner rock while smoking a ton of pot on your last record, but are now listening to the folk music, those won't resonate the same way. Acknowledge that and then figure out who you are today based upon what's emotionally resonating with you by continuing to explore what you now feel. Don't try to be the person you used to be. Instead, pay attention to who you are now. Standards. A common cause for a block can be the standards we develop after hearing our ideas fully realized. After hearing how awesome your last record sounded once it was produced, mixed, and mastered, hearing your ideas on GarageBand can be pretty disappointing. You could be used to the emotion you got from hearing fully realized ideas. Subsequently, bare-bones ideas don't resonate as strongly. It takes time to develop your ideas to be the level of emotional resonance you're looking towards. If you're experiencing an extended block, it can be helpful to bring a few songs to near completion to remember what that sounds like, even if you're not confident they're your best work. Even if you have to throw them out, by then, you'll have relearned what songs should sound like at certain points of the process, allowing you to make good decisions again. Change Perspective for less serious creative blocks, when you're stumped on a small detail, it can be as easy as changing things up in a small way. Simple changes in an environment or interface, blindfolding yourself, playing your part on another instrument, standing up instead of sitting down, using a different hand, or changing the octave you're in can all shake up the process enough to give you a breakthrough. Anytime you feel stumped, the best practice is to change small variables that give you another perspective until you break through. Habits to help your creative output. Treating your creative work as a job. A common bit of advice you'll hear throughout the internet is you should write one song a day or treat your creative project as a job. This means that you should be devoting some time to this project five to seven days a week. The most famous case of this is the author Stephen King, who writes 2,000 words a day, whether it's a weekend, holiday, or his birthday. While this is admirable, I think it neglects the details of what we should be doing with our time. There are helpful hacks to this regimen, the first one being delegation. If I'm not feeling creative, I may do some librarian work editing, or some other simple work to get progress done. While Mr. King may write 2,000 words a day, this also means he has to set aside time outside of this practice to get inspired, do clerical work, edit, and storyboard. You shouldn't measure your progress solely in what you perspire, but instead as time spent towards making an output you're happy with. Each day you can allocate some time to being creative, doing any of the many jobs you have as a creator. Do some neatening of your space. Be a better librarian of your ideas. Read some interviews with those you admire. Listen to some new records. Work on getting more proficient at an instrument. Learn more about recording. And most of all, do some drafting or writing. The reason treating your creativity like a commitment is so highly praised is it helps discipline aloof artsy personalities. If it weren't for the forfeiture of deposits for studio time when musicians cancel a session, we would see half as many records made. Creatives commit by saying what they're doing via release dates or bookings since it's the only way they'll stay disciplined. Making a commitment that keeps you on track for your goals is one of the only disciplines musicians seem to embrace. 80% of success is showing up. Woody Allen. One of the worst quotes thrown around about creative habits is that if you show up, most of the work is done. While this was the case in Woody's day, when you had to get through so many gatekeepers to get a film done since DIY films were nearly non-existent, these days are long gone as the playing field for everyone to create gets lower and lower. Standing in total contrary to Mr. Allen's naive point is science. Hal Gergensen, a professor at Inseed Business School, says, in fact, creativity is close to 80% learned and acquired. To be good at being creative, you have to show up, but without finding the right inspiration, asking the right questions, and analyzing your problems, you'll come up short. The consideration of what's holding you back. 
While you should try to work every day you can, there are times when you need to give some evaluation as to why you don't feel like creating. We know the paralysis of doing nothing gets you nowhere. The usual advice is to push out some work, whether it's terrible or not. If you're feeling more averse than usual to creating, there's probably a reason you're feeling this that could stem from the need to give further consideration on how your life and creative endeavor are intertwined. Sometimes our bodies are telling us a message we need to hear. Not all resistance is toxic, but instead a symptom you need to explore further. Just like when you get a headache, your brain is trying to signal that you should pause to consider the source of a headache, such as hunger, lack of caffeine, or excessive drinking. Considering what's holding you back to remedy this resistance is often more effective than pushing out subpar work for the sake of productivity. This is not to say you get to spend countless hours considering why your productivity isn't as good as your favorite ours. But if you're experiencing extreme resistance compared to your normal output, it's time to evaluate what's happening. With that said, when I start working, it takes some time to get my momentum. I'll often feel resistance, thinking I'm too tired or should rest instead of creating. But if I push through for 15 to 30 minutes, I'll usually get some momentum for a few hours. If I still feel exhausted after an hour of work, I try to figure out what's wrong. Here are some common causes for why I feel resistance after pushing through it for a while. I always try to figure out what I fear about a project. Years ago when I was working on my own album of dance material, I felt more resistance than normal as I tried to craft the record. My fears stemmed from not wanting to spend my life in dance clubs at 4am in my 30s. Once I figured this out, I abandoned the project to focus on my first book instead. I'm very thankful for this decision since the resistance I felt throughout the project was signaling I hadn't considered where this would take me in life. I also feared how listeners would react to the music I put out. As someone known for producing punk records, when I wanted to follow my heart to make a dance record, it was scary. I realized that if I never did it, I'd regret it forever, but if I tried and failed, it'd probably be good for me. I released a few songs to little reaction, moved on, and am proud of what I did. One of those fears was necessary to explore to make a good decision. The other was fear I needed to push through. Exhaustion. I never know when to stop working if I'm excited about a project. So when my body feels too tired to create, I usually know it's time to watch an episode of Mr. Robot instead of pushing myself further. However, when feeling overwhelmed by a project, it can feel the same as exhaustion. So I need to give the problem of the project further evaluation. If I do some incubation on the project, the exhaustion usually disappears so I can create again. The need to incubate. Author Neil Gaiman says he needs to get extremely bored to create. I often have a similar experience in that I need to watch TV, read books, and browse the internet until I'm so bored that I'm hungry to create again. Feeling averse to creating is a signal I need to do more consideration since I know once an idea is considered, I always work diligently. It helps to observe your own patterns so you can interpret the signs your mind is giving you. Health. I can feel too tired to create, but if I drink some water and get some potassium, I'm all of a sudden ready to work. If your body isn't receiving nutrition, it can be hard to motivate yourself, even when you're inspired. Many musicians compensate for this lack of health with energy drinks and coffee. While this can work for a while, it's no substitute for proper nutrition. It gets better. Always remember resistance gets better. Once you start creating and push past the obstacle, it gets easier and more enjoyable. This is not to say there won't be more obstacles along the way. No one starts a project worth doing without resistance. Whether it's fear of how much time it'll take up, the stress of creation, or how it's received, everyone has some resistance. Don't feel like a freak for having these feelings and know that resistance is normal. It's often getting you to consider your life choices and make sure you're ready for them. Getting the stress out of your head. It's very rare to be able to create without other obligations tugging at you. 
In my life, I have a startup business that demands I answer emails in a fast and productive manner. I find it extremely difficult to focus on being creative when there's a pending disaster. As much as I'd love to devote the time to my work, I know I'll be extremely blocked unless I write an email back and solve the pressing problem. Some artists have more trouble than others creating when they're stressed about a situation. But you should always try to work through it If you cannot get through it, consider trying to arrange your calendar to create after you deal with the stress if possible. Morning Pages Julia Campbell's The Artist's Way talks about the technique of using morning pages where you do a stream of conscious writing to clear your head of any stress. Anything that comes to mind should be written down to rid your brain of the burden of retaining it. Getting your stresses out on paper and then retaining it on a to-do list with a course of action can give you headspace to create with less resistance. This technique also leads you to write down thoughts that should be incubated and developed further. Get it out before it's gone. Stress isn't the only annoyance you need to get out of your head. One of the funny quirks about the brain is it's always looking to move on to the next idea. If you haven't retained your inspiration, your brain will eventually find new ideas to think about instead of the inspiration currently occupying space in your head. A common way to motivate yourself is to recognize that if you don't get inspiration out of your head, it may be gone forever. Just as we discussed with retention, every moment you wait to retain your inspiration, it continually gets diluted, losing nuance with each passing moment. There's no time like the present to start perspiring. Make the first decision. Often what's holding us back is the stress of a decision we needed to make in our creation. Science shows that if you make the first decision you need to make, even if you edit it later, this gets us closer to getting into a flow state which gets us past resistance. We commonly over-contemplate decisions when we should be tinkering with them to get the momentum that we need to start creating. Getting creative time worked into a busy life. Guard your creative time. Show me someone's calendar, and I will show you their priorities. Ramit Sethi. One of the most effective ways to get past resistance is to make your creative project a higher priority. Merlin Mann has talked about that if your creative outlet is the most important priority in your life, your calendar should reflect that. He says, just as you wouldn't leave your best friend bleeding if they got hit in the face with a hockey puck, your creative life bleeds when you don't prioritize it. If you say your music is the most important thing in the world and you spend five more hours playing baseball or video games each week than you do on your music, that isn't factually true. While it may be true in your aspirations, this means you need to change your time delegation. This means you may need to cut down on the recreational hockey league or video games taking up your calendar to show that your music is indeed what's most important. It's essential to view your time as a pie chart where there's only a finite amount to give. When one commitment takes up more time, another commitment gets less. Many artists talk about guarding their idea time, and while they book time to execute their ideas like recording sessions or band practices, far too often they don't guard the time it takes to get inspired and create new ideas. It's said that you don't find the time to create. You must make the time. Without making sure this time isn't interrupted, it will always get eaten up by other circumstances. Paying the bills while being creative. Figuring out how to balance paying the bills along with your creative endeavor is one of the hardest parts of life. As I write this, my job is both being a record producer five days a week and getting work done in my startup while finishing this book. One of the boundaries I can't get around is that despite my ability to work a 16-hour day recording bands with little resistance, trying to do two hours of writing after a 10-hour day of recording doesn't give me results I'm ever happy with. This realization led me to develop a schedule where I work at my recording studio for as long as possible so I can take days off to write. Since my productivity is uninspired, if I've expended my energy recording for long hours, I had to find a way to make this work so I make progress on the book while still getting paid. You may have experienced a similar case with your day job, and if so, you may need to figure out ways to engineer your life to balance with paying your bills. Many artists do their creative work by waking up early before work. Others chill out for an hour or two after work and then begin to create. 
Figuring out a pattern instead of hoping for the best is the way most people find to be creative more often. It takes me a long time to wake up, so my best time to work happens from hour 4 to 14 of being awake each day. This means I do chores, email, and other boring work early in the morning so I can create at my ideal hours of the day. Lifestyle Sacrifices Musicians usually realize that if they want to fulfill their creative vision, they must sacrifice some parts of their life. It's no secret that musicians with fancy degrees will wait tables to have weekends free for their gigs and fund their recording expenses. I regularly talk friends through the decisions of their life about sacrifice to fulfill their creative vision. While you cannot prescribe a course of action for every situation, there are some general life rules that commonly apply. Living in squalor. Many musicians are faced with the option of living with their parents in roommate-filled apartments or in their van to tour. Rents in creator havens like Brooklyn and San Francisco are hardly nurturing to allow free time to create. Living in less than ideal situations allows you to devote money and time to your creativity. While it's not always fun at the time, there are very few people who look back later in life regretting those times, whether their music career was successful in their eyes or not. Acclaimed writer Jonathan Franzen's early days were spent with him and his wife living in squalor to get by, eating out only once a year so they could afford a lifestyle of writing eight hours a day and reading to get inspired the other hours of the day. My friend Ross Robinson lived in a rehearsal space to devote his recording budgets as a producer to nicer studios. When producing Korn's first record, he chose to do it at a studio where the band could live to get around this and get some rest during the record. Needless to say, the sacrifice worked as his career was solidified with this hack when the record went on to sell millions of copies. When writing my last book, I lived on a futon in my recording studio for months so I'd have less rent and be able to work less to get the book written. After the success of the book, I now sleep on an extremely comfortable bed. Allocation Far too many musicians set arbitrary budget limits on their creative endeavors. They never make small sacrifices to obtain the budget or time they would need to get the creative result they're looking for. Whether this is devoting another few hours a week to working on your songs, or saving more money to go to a mixer who will help present your songs properly, figuring out how you best allocate your resources is crucial. Using science to force you into a creative habit. When developing creating into a habit, we all too often get down on ourselves when we can't get into a routine. We begin to believe the resistance is too strong to overcome or that we're failures. This frustration is misdirected since no one teaches us how to get into good habits to create regularly. Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, illustrates what science has taught us about getting into good habits. The first mistake creators make is to sneak in their project whenever they can instead of forming a routine. The first step is to establish a cue, which tells you to start creating. Common cues are based on different indicators like location, time, and emotional state, or upon finishing a duty like your day job. After the cue, you should go into your creative routine, whatever that may be. After you complete your routine, you need to have a reward. For many of us, the creative process is very rewarding, but for those experiencing resistance, it can be helpful to hold off on a reward until after the process is done. This reward can be a Netflix show, dinner, dessert, or time with your loved ones. It can also help to establish long-term rewards. If there's a reward you'll get after creating that you crave, such as praise, travel, or money, that will help motivate you as well. For many people, having a reminder of the reward to motivate themselves is a great incentive. To motivate myself to write this book, I keep a calendar on my bedroom wall that tracks my progress to remind me I can go to Japan once the book promotion is done. Using your calendar to force a routine. Routine is a word met with disgust for musicians since it describes the horrible torture of being at a job you hate day in, day out. 
especially for a group of people who are as opposed to discipline as musicians, oftentimes tricking yourself into a routine is how you'll get what's in you out into the world. But a routine in your life can be helpful since it keeps you creating regularly. The idea of a routine is a prescribed action that takes place after a cue. Motivating yourself can be about utilizing guilt. Jerry Seinfeld would try to make a chain of X's across a calendar where every day he'd put in the work of writing jokes, which symbolized not breaking the chain by doing his work for consecutive days. I employed a similar method writing this book where I tracked how many words I wrote each week to make sure I was keeping up with my deadlines. This method allows you to not only keep track of deadlines, but also understand how much makeup work you'll need to do in order to have the work you're expected to have done on time. Longer sessions don't always mean more effective days. When I talk with record producers on my podcast, a common conversation is that 16-hour days aren't the same as two eight-hour days. As you continually create, there's a temptation to make days longer to get more out of them. In time, there's a realization that there's an ideal session length that allows a full night of sleep so that you perform better the next day. Longer days don't necessarily mean twice the amount of work getting done. Instead, they result in sluggish, slow work that could be done in a more effective delegation. There's a balance you need to strike with keeping momentum while taking sufficient breaks to make sure you keep a good headspace. I have a term I call punch drunk. When punching in a track for too long, I'll feel a drowsy lack of clarity that, unlike being drunk, has no useful benefits. Sustained focused work can be amazing for getting creative work done, but if you book two weeks of it with no room for time off, along with 14-hour plus days, realize that a lot of that time may be spent being burnt out. You'll then spend a lot of this time doing forced work where you can't see straight or trying to get your composure. Ear fatigue, ego depletion, and a handful of other factors make it so that long days aren't always the answer to getting a higher output from your work. While on strict deadlines, there can be no other choice. When working on tight deadlines, I try to make myself more present by ignoring the phone, Twitter, and my other addictions to stay focused, since I can't make my days longer, but can make them more effective. Making your own creative process. There's a whole creative industrial complex pumping out content on how to optimize your creative process to get into better habits. Part of being a great artist is recognizing when there's a flaw in your system and then adapting to rid yourself of the flaw. Analyzing your process and where it breaks down is needed from time to time. For example, you may realize you aren't having enough ideas and have too many skeletons, so have to start choosing some skeletons to dress up in flesh. Take the time to analyze where you think your creative process is failing and then make a plan to adapt. This reflection can be far more effective than reading another article on optimizing your creativity. Finding your creative cocktail. One of the other reasons a lot of advice on enhancing creativity falls short is everyone needs a different cocktail to get where they feel right in the head. Everyone's brain is experiencing a different chemical reaction. To level off adverse effects or to enhance our effectiveness, we turn to various chemicals to make our brains more optimal. Often creators take a handful of different chemicals and dietary supplements to get the results they want. This combination is called a cocktail. Mason Curry's brilliant book, Daily Rituals, examined many of the best creators' daily habits. Aside from the fact that it was stunning how many of them were on the strangest primitive drugs of their time, what you'll notice is everyone needs to find a cocktail of chemicals that works for them. While you can buy the same amp as someone else you admire to get a similar tone, what works for one person's brain can have the opposite reaction in another. The only way to find an effective cocktail for you is by listening to your body to find a cocktail that helps you achieve the results you want. No two creators have the same habit in their cocktail intake. Some do it completely sober, while others do it while taking more drugs than you can name off the top of your head. But the commonality behind all these great artists is they found a cocktail that works for them. But this is one part of creativity where imitating your idols won't always work since everyone's mind needs different chemical reactions to get the desired outcome. Accumulating subtleties 
Meditation. Meditation isn't for everyone, but if you've ever listened to Tim Ferriss' podcast, where he interviews top performers in a wide variety of fields, you'll notice that about 90% of them have meditation in their cocktail. Unfortunately, until you've experienced the benefits of meditation, most people dismiss it. It's looked at as another burden that will take up time, despite its ability to make your life far easier. I went 36 years without effectively meditating, but in recent years, the benefits I've seen from my irregular practice have been helpful. Leiden University found that meditation could improve creativity by boosting the ability to think of new ideas. It's been found that meditation can allow you to see answers more clearly and concentrate better when faced with a tough problem. If you find it's hard to focus for sustained sessions without turning to your phone or other distracting indulgences, regularly meditating can be helpful. If you find yourself unable to work without thinking of the 10,000 other things in your life, this can also be diminished with a regular meditation practice. Sleep. While we get some of our best ideas when we're tired or barely awake, a lack of sleep is terrible for your health as well as your motivation. Look no further than your Facebook feed for an inspirational Ariana Huffington quote or a study that shows eight hours of sleep a day will improve memory, performance, and concentration. Because I need to be creative at least five days a week, I've made getting this sleep a top priority that I engineer my life around. This means sometimes being a party pooper by going home early when I'm out at a show having fun. If you regularly feel drained or unmotivated and don't regularly get eight hours of sleep, you need to adjust your life so you can get more sleep. This may mean changing jobs or the environment in which you create. Many creators pursue their projects in the morning since they know they're far too tired to be creative after a day of work and ego depletion. So going to bed even earlier is the only route to creating. Sadly, this doesn't go well with musician lifestyles where you need to be at shows that regularly start at 10 p.m. Diet. Nothing is more boring than listening to a hipster from Brooklyn lecture you on how you should eat, so I'll keep this brief and scientific. Your diet affects your creativity since it greatly affects your motivation. If you're feeding yourself junk food, you'll have less energy. If you find yourself constantly procrastinating or giving up when faced with a hard problem, this is often due to a lack of energy. A simple way to get more energy is to eat better. If you don't know what eating better means, I'm sure there are 10 friends who will be happy to fill you with knowledge of how to get more kale in your diet and what you can drink that isn't so. I'd be remiss to not mention that the direction science is going is that your gut bacteria helps regulate brain plasticity. In layman's terms, if you're putting junk food into your system and it's having a detrimental effect on your gut bacteria, you may be making it harder to have epiphanies, which slows down your creativity. Aside from this, the food coma phenomenon is often from eating too many carbohydrate-based foods. As someone with a strong love of carbs, it pains me to say that before a day of creating, getting a meal that's low in carbs can help you be more energetic and attentive. Caffeine. There's no doubt that caffeine has been a huge part of creating in nearly every discipline for centuries. It's a given as a tool musicians use to stay in the headspace to create. Many of them overcompensate with energy drinks that give a high and then a severe crash. With that said, the moderate use of coffee and teas in various levels of use are sustained during the creative process for nearly every musician. Science shows that the focus and improved mental clarity occurs with caffeine use that can help sustain creativity. I drink coffee every morning and then matcha tea as the day progresses, which provides a calmer, more sustained caffeine buzz. I prefer Matcha Bar's brand if you can get it. Many people are experimenting with coconut oil or MCT oil in their coffee, which they find in enhances brain clarity. Hydration. Many mistake dehydration to be a small detail in your life. If you aren't drinking a minimum of 64 ounces of water daily, you aren't nurturing your body to do the tasks it needs to do at a basic level, and this goes even more so for singers or those who drink lots of alcohol. Watering your body by keeping it hydrated gives you energy as well as mental clarity. Every bit of frustration you have throughout a day, as well as resistance, is easier to overcome when you drink enough water. Drugs and creativity. I've never done heroin, I wouldn't recommend heroin, but it sure hasn't hurt my record collection. Bill Maher
Drugs are a hard subject to broach, since it's inarguable how many great musicians have used them, and it's also impossible to refute that many of their lives have been ruined by them. Like the Bill Maher quote above, I have a hard time recommending anyone do drugs since I've lost over a dozen friends to cocaine, heroin, and prescription drug overdoses. But I cannot also discuss creativity and music without ignoring this huge part of it. So to make this clear, I don't recommend anyone does drugs. I want to talk about what science says instead of anecdotal evidence about what has worked for a single person. All too often, the stories were told of drugs drugs being the creative spark and great work doesn't hold up to any real testing to show it was the drugs that made them achieve a great height instead of lessening it. Alcohol the most popular creative drug and widely regarded as an ingredient to creative thoughts. It's been proven that small amounts of alcohol have a disinhibiting effect on the brain, allowing blocks to come down that were normally there and epiphanies to arise. There's a key word in that sentence small amounts. Since large amounts of alcohol slow your brain to a crawl and leave you exhausted the next day. The disinhibiting effects of alcohol can allow you to stop being fussy about aspects of your creative process and move on to perspiring without self-doubt creeping in. There are very few studies on alcohol's effect on creativity, but the few there are say it can help incubation but not verification. This means alcohol can help you get a good idea, but you won't know whether it's good at the time. Just like the drunken college antics with alcohol, what you wake up next to creatively in the morning can either be great or disastrous. Marijuana Putting marijuana near any other drug makes me uncomfortable since it's a false equivalency having it near drugs that kill people as opposed to one that occasionally makes some users a bit lazier. What most science shows is that certain groups of people, but not all, benefit from marijuana use by stimulating their creativity. Just like alcohol, Leiden University studies show that a light use can help creativity, but too much marijuana use is detrimental to creativity. Cocaine Cocaine is an amphetamine that can focus you, but also cuts down on the interaction between the creative parts of your brain. It may be tempting to engage in amphetamine use, but if you're looking for good ideas, this will hinder you. It does excite what scientists call the working memory, where small connections can be made, but if you're looking for a large epiphany, this isn't where you'll likely find it. A classic trope of musicians in a recording studio is blowing a line of cocaine the size of the mixing console. There are plenty of other ways to get that energy that won't potentially kill you, damage your brain permanently, or drain your wallet while leaving you in a horrible come down within 30 minutes of ceasing use. There are plenty of other options that are far less harmful to you. Heroin. Heroin is a terrible drug that few would say the reward is worth the risk it poses to your life once you try it. Saying anything good can come of it will usually get you yelled at, like when Blur's Damon Albarn tried to convey this point. With that said, there's no study that I can find that licks heroin use directly to creativity. Many scientists have hypothesized that it breaks down inhibitions like alcohol and that it can create an altered state that can be inspiring. Despite whatever inspiration it possibly provides, there's far better ways to get inspired that are much less dangerous. LSD and psilocybin. Thousands of creators cite LSD and psilocybin as opening their minds to greater creative worlds. Science backs this up with even more scientific studies being done each year that shows controlled dosages of these drugs lead users to epiphanies, enhanced thought patterns, and new evidence shows it can even cure depression. Like alcohol, the key being controlled dosages, since prolonged usage and extreme doses have ruined many minds. Experimentation can be extremely risky since it's hard to get a controlled dosage, which makes these drugs dangerous with possibly irreversible effects. Adderall. Adderall, or the newer, more fashionable relatives of it like modafinil, aka New Vigil, have yet to have extensive studies on their effect on creativity, but there are concerns that it may help execution but hinder imagination. With that said, there's no definitive information showing these drugs hinder creativity. While I've experimented with all of the above, they put me in too intense a state to work properly. I opt for a lighter nootropic that helps my focus like on its alpha brain for an extra kick on writing days, which helps me think in a more concise way. 
antidepressants. Like Adderall, any research I could find wasn't determinative. But what we do have is a lot of artists who say that it helped them be happy enough to be productive, or that it left them feeling an uninspired nothingness. There are many artists who find their depression to be a color that gives their work life, while there are others who find it totally destructive. When considering antidepressants for creativity, the only way to know if it'll be helpful is trying it yourself or forgoing the use of them while trying to make progress on your happiness without them. Changing your cocktail. One of the toughest parts of gaining success in your creative endeavor is that some of the inspiration could come from the state of mind you were in at a previous time. Many musicians attribute their cocktail to why they had a creative hype. One of my favorite directors, Lars von Trier, famously told Polotkin that he wouldn't be able to make good films anymore once he became sober. Obviously, the parallel world has its price, but I got an enormous amount out of it. Just like all the artists I've respected the most, they've also wallowed in all sorts of mind-expanding drugs. Many musicians live in fear of changing that cocktail, since great ideas can occur under that influence. But to think that way is to look at the countless stars who have changed their cocktails while continually creating great works. If you see your cocktail as being a culmination of your inspiration, daily lifestyle, habits, and the epiphanies you've had, that's giving far too much credit to your cocktail. These variables are bound to change from record to record or even from song to song across a record. So being afraid to change ignores these variables are always changing. But that said, when you find a healthy habit that helps you create better, it's deeply beneficial to nurture it by making it a part of your life. If you do experience obvious creative diminishment after changing your cocktail, you can compensate in other ways. If you got most of your inspiration while drinking, try to find inspiration through more research or a new form of experimentation. If energy drinks help you execute your ideas, eating healthier will give you the energy you used to have. You can always find a cocktail to give you an extra kick. But remember, your cocktail isn't what makes you, it's just an enhancement. Accumulating subtleties. The absence of an ingredient of your cocktail isn't a reason to avoid creating. All of these tips are small ways to make it easier to create, not an excuse that allows you not to do your work. Any cocktail ingredient allows you to enhance what you do, not take sole responsibility for the genesis of your creation. Many of the great creators have worked without any of these ingredients, and you can too. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.